The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look at a subject known by various different names, but we're talking, of course, of the dweller of the threshold. This concept has been with mankind from time immemorial, and it's recognized throughout the different mystery school teachings brought to you by the secret society groups. And I think there is some kernel of truth to some of the implications that are given for such a thing, as well as the different alleged facts given about the nature of this state of being that we do have in this place that the secret societies tell us about. So we're going to explore that topic tonight, and we're going to read an article written by one Dr. Franz Hartmann, M.D., and this was originally printed in a publication called The Theosophist, Volume 11, in the year 1889, and there was a reprint issued in July of 1920 by the Theosophical Publishing House in Madras, India. And that's what we're going to be reading from. And it's a very interesting read, as we'll see here. Indicates a lot of points about this phenomenon that we call the dweller of the threshold and various other distinctions that this thing's been given. The idea here, the doppelganger, the aramonic double, if you will. So we're going to read a little bit about the nature of this phenomenon. So let's get right into the reading here. And of course, as is the usual state of affairs here, I will pause at various points and give my opinions or my different viewpoints on these various topics and various things, various aspects of this topic in particular, because this is a deep one. This is something that's hugely important 
if it holds true. And I do think, as I said before, there is a kernel of truth to this. And I always caution, always take it with a grain of salt, because there's no way to truly prove nor disprove any of it in some type of a way in which will be convincing enough for people to accept it as a fact or not. It's a subjective thing, so there's no objective evidence that can really suss this whole thing out for us. It's a spiritual concept. It's something where you have to think outside the materialist paradigm that we're in in order to identify it. So let's get into the reading without further ado. It will perhaps be asked why in this enlightened century we desire to call attention to alchemy, which by the majority of mankind is looked upon as an array of vagaries, extravagancies, and superstitions, having been repeatedly ex-cathedra declared to be by scientific authorities. To those who put implicit faith in the infallibility of modern science, we have no apology to offer, but to the unprejudiced investigator, we answer that alchemy, if properly understood, is a science embodying the highest truths which a spiritually enlightened mortal may possibly attain, and that a practical knowledge of them is of the highest importance for his own eternal welfare and for the progression of mankind. Being a spiritual science, it is also a religion, for science means a knowledge of facts, and there can be no higher facts than those which relate to the highest state which a man may possibly attain, and which with which religion deals. So I'm going to pause for a moment, folks. So this author says that this is a spiritual science, alchemy, and being a spiritual science, it has an intrinsic link to religion. Now this is an interesting idea to take into consideration here. Science, he says, means a knowledge of facts. And there's no higher facts than the highest state, which man can possibly attain, is what he says. And this is what religion deals with, by and large. And it's about spiritual things. How man can achieve this spiritual immortality, this spiritual sense of enlightenment, this spiritual ascension, if it were. And this is something that pertains to religion. So he's saying this is different from what you would call your modern materialist science. This is a spiritual science, and being so, it has this connotation of religion attached to it. So let's keep that in mind as we continue on here. The word religion has a threefold meaning. In its highest aspect, it means the practical application of wisdom, of which the divine element germinally contained in the constitution of man, is awakened to self-consciousness and reunited as a conscious power to the divine force from which it emanated in the beginning. This process is taught by those who are spiritually illuminated, but is beyond the full comprehension of those in whom the inner life has not yet awakened. For theoretical knowledge can never become real knowledge without practical experience. In its second signification, the word religion means a theoretical knowledge of the essential constitution of man, of the relation existing between man and the source from which he and everything else in nature originated, of his final destiny, etc. 
Here is the battleground of the philosophers, theologians, and other speculative minds, the realm of various and contradictory opinions caused by a reflection and distortion of the truth in the minds of individual men. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So he refers to this as a reflection and distortion of the truth in the minds of individual men. This idea of the theoretical knowledge of who and what we are. So keep that in mind here, too. This is the second definition he gives of religion. Defining what a religion is, because he says it's a threefold meaning. And this will be important later as we get a little further along here. Think about that. So it's a reflection. Our understanding, our knowledge, our theoretical knowledge of spiritual things is a reflection of the truth in the minds of individual men. And it's a distortion based upon that because it is a reflection. And it's not necessarily a pure reflection. It gets distorted much like if you were to see your reflection in a pool of water. Often it has some distortions to it, and it's the same kind of a concept here. So let's continue on keeping that in mind. In its third signification, religion is a system of forms, ceremonies, and usages by which some supposed external deity is worshipped or propitiated. Here is the realm of sectarian differences, of bigotry, superstition, and ignorance. Here the form is adored and kept sacred, and the principle neglected. The followers of this kind of religion appeal to the passions of men and cause conflicts and quarrels. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this absolutely I do find a little bit of an air of truth to. The form is adored, but the principle is neglected. And that's wherein a lot has gone wrong with mainline religion in this world. They put emphasis on the external appearance of things rather than giving the attention to the principles involved. It's all about appearances, keeping up appearances. This is the whitewashed tomb idea as spoken of in the Bible with the Pharisees. They were as whitewashed tombs. Dead inside, but uh, they look nice on the outside. Nice and clean on the outside. So it's the same kind of an idea here. So religion in its ceremonial type of aspect in this way, this dogmatic form of it is a dead entity of sorts. And it takes on the guise of corporation. And are not most churches a tax-free corporation of sorts? Most of them, they, they file that 501c3 status, and they're a tax-exempt organization, but they still have to incorporate to get that distinction. So it's a corporation, and what is a corporation? Well, corporation is derived from the word corpse. It's a dead entity, and we t speak so much about this all the time. This is what's been done in this world. It's all run on these death-based ideas because the people running the show, these dark occultists at the top of the power structure, they are a death cult. They build entire systems around this philosophy of death. 
that's what's been done here. So this is where you get the idea of elevating the form, but losing or neglecting the principles involved with it. So you lose the core meaning, but you put on the appearances. And this is much of what's wrong with the world today. Because people don't put into practice what they preach. And this is what has happened, by and large, all over the world and in all religious denominations. Not just the Christian religion, not just the Muslim religion, not just the Jewish religion, any of these religions. Any of these systems, philosophies, nobody keeps the law of those religions perfectly. Nobody. And that is wherein we have a lot of the problems that arise. Because you can't physically do it. You see, that's why we needed an intercessor. But we're not going to talk about that too much here because I want to continue into the reading. Because there are some deep truths here to be found. And this, I think, is a, a good distinction that the author here made. Much of what you see of organized religion in this world today is just a show. It adores the form and neglects the principle. And I think he's absolutely correct in making that distinction. And we see that, and we see the, the fruits of that manifesting how many generations later. We absolutely see the fruits of that. But let's continue on with the reading. It can have nothing to do with true religion, but is evidently opposed to it. This mistaking of the form for the principle on the part of the keepers of religion is, to a great extent, the cause of the materialism of this age. For the intellectual classes are wise enough to see that the forms are empty, but not wise enough to grasp the principle without the form. So I'm going to pause again there, folks. This is another important idea that he just expressed here. He says that those intellectually minded folks, those ones who see that the form that the religion keeps is empty, he says they recognize its emptiness, but they miss the whole point. They miss the substance thereof, the principle behind the form. Because the form is empty. Because, like I said, it's all about putting on appearances. Keeping up appearances. And they see this. And they view it from the perspective, well, it's just sheer hypocrisy. And with that viewpoint in mind, they distance themselves from it, and they totally miss the substance behind it. The principle behind it. And they can't grasp the principle without the form. So this is another hugely important point. So most people completely miss the whole core of what it's all about, of what this spiritual walk is all about, because they see simply the material world manifestation, and they view it as nothing more than this physical material world. They don't look beyond the material here into the spiritual aspect of things. We've been trained in this way in this age, and he's absolutely correct in saying it's lended itself to pushing this materialist paradigm that we're in. We absolutely see that. Man thinks in terms of the physical. This physical material world in which we manifest and we exist. 
and they try to equate everything down to a byproduct of this physical place, of this physical form that we live in. And in so doing, they relegate to obscurity the principles behind it. And when they relegate to obscurity the principles behind it, they miss the point entirely. And they get further entrenched in this hyper-materialist paradigm. But let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. There can be no religion and no higher science than that of the truth relating to the highest mysteries of the divine element in nature. And these truths are taught in our system of alchemy. But it will naturally be asked, why then do our philosophers, theologians, and scientists know nothing about it? The answer is that the dweller of the threshold guards the door to the temple of truth and must be conquered before we can enter. Who is this dweller of the threshold? Probably all of our readers have heard of him. They may have read his description in Bulwar Lytton's Zenoni, where Glyndon, during the temporary absence of the adept, impelled by his own curiosity to learn the forbidden mysteries of the latter, invaded the laboratory and is frightened out of his wits by the appearance of the horrible specter, which is henceforth his unwelcome companion for life. He, when he submits to the demands of his lower self and revels in sensual pleasures, the hag disappears, but whenever he attempts to rise above that level... Then she steps forth with her hateful eyes and seeks to drag him with her long fingers into her cold embrace. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Bulwer Lytton wrote a book called Zanoni. It's highly regaled in the occult fraternities. If you find this book, it's a work of fiction, but it explains the idea, and it's one of the main manuscripts that's been credited with naming this this entity, this force, this concept, this spirit, known as the dweller of the threshold, or the dweller on the threshold. So it's an important piece of literature to the students of the occult. It's called Zanoni. And it's a story talking about alche alchemical principles and an alchemical apprentice. So if you can get this book and you're interested in reading it, go ahead and read it. There's a lot of encoded messages in there. I don't know if I could use the word messages. It's not necessarily the correct term. Information. We'll just say information. There's a lot of encoded information in there. And there's a lot of good esoteric science involved in it as well. The spiritual sciences, of course. It was written for people who belong to the mystery schools by people who belong to the mystery schools. Let's put it that way. Much like when you see the movie 2001, understand that was written for those who know in the mystery schools by those who know in the mystery schools. So there's all this hidden esoteric messaging in there. I guess messaging is a correct term, I suppose. It's information being conveyed, so that, I guess, would constitute a message. But anyway, so that's the lowdown on this book, Zanoni. So he's comparing the idea here to the book Zanoni, written by Bulwer Lytton, who was also well-known in occult circles. Let's read on, though. 
This dweller of the threshold meets us in many shapes. It is the Cerebrus guarding the entrance to Hades, the dragon which St. Michael, and it says in parentheses here, spiritual willpower, is going to kill, the snake which tempted Eve, and whose head will be crushed by the heel of the woman, the hobgoblin watching the place where the treasure is buried, etc. He is the king of evil, who will not permit that within his kingdom a child should grow up, which might surpass him in, a, in power. The Herod, before the, whose wrath the divine child Christ has to flee into a foreign country and is not permitted to return to his home, and it says in parentheses, the soul, until the king, the king they identify in parentheses here as ambition, pride, vanity, self-righteousness, etc., until the king is dethroned or dead. Many times Christ flees before Herod and cannot return at all, because Herod lives and rules until the house of life, the temple of the divine Christ, is destroyed by death. And then he continues here by saying, Many people celebrate the birth of an external Christ as an event said to have taken place some 18 centuries ago while they continually drive away the living Christ from their hearts by the power of Herod. Few only recognize the true Christ and permit him to enter. The former flatter themselves for having the right belief. The latter enjoy the true faith. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially he says here, this whole idea of the dweller of the threshold relates to all these different stories that we have. The dragon, which St. Michael slays. Cerebrus guarding the entrance to Hades. The snake, which tempted Eve, the hobgoblin watching the treasure. And also the story of how Christ has to flee from Herod. And it gives this breakdown as to what it is that that means. This is according to theosophical thinking. This is what they say. They say this: these stories, they're allegories representing these things. And they give a good explanation here, thereof. So, with that being the case, we see how they compare it here. To that point of Herod... Herod being a type of a model for this dweller of the threshold. The snake in the Garden of Eden attempted Eve, Satan. So I think that gives a clear distinction. What is this dweller of the threshold idea? And where does it exist or manifest? Let's continue on and we'll see what else he says here. All such accounts are allegories representing a real truth whose knowledge is of the greatest importance, for it is the beginning of the great work. And he who does not know how to begin will not accomplish much. The dweller of the threshold, the dragon of medieval symbolism, is nothing else but our own lower animal, semi-animal, or perhaps brutish self. That combination of material and semi-material principles which form the lower ego, which the great majority of men blindly and lovingly hug and caress because they love themselves. 
Man does not see its true qualities as long as he clings to it, else he would perhaps be disgusted with it. But when he attempts to penetrate within the portals of the paradise of the soul, when his self-consciousness begins to become centered in his higher self, then the dweller of the threshold becomes objective to him, and he may be terrified at its ugliness and deformity. And it says in parentheses, his own ugliness and deformity. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we've discussed this idea before. This is very important to all of these different mystery teachings. It's the distinction between the higher self and the animal self. The lower form separating the higher self from the lower self, allowing the higher self to have control over the animalistic desires that we have in this physical form. So this is what it's about. So this dweller of the threshold represents the animalistic self, the physical self, the one that's stuck in the hyper-materialist paradigm. This strictly physical force. This would be what Rudolf Steiner identifies as the spirit of Ahriman. The Ahrimanic spirit. That thing which steers us ever further into materialism. Being stuck in this materialist way of thinking. Absolving any spirituality from the whole equation as it were. And what does our modern science do? This is exactly what it steers us into. And then we wonder why we have so many problems in the world today. Why crime is rampant. Why corruption is rampant. Why all these things are rampant in this society. And it's because of this. This idea of stepping away looking away and rejecting anything spiritual, and thinking in strictly material, physical world terms. That's what science has done to us. It's the new religion, folks, and it's a religion that leads us down this road into this animal nature that we have, entrenching us further in that, in the hyper-materialist paradigm where we seek to fulfill those animalistic urges that we have. And it always invariably leads to death and destruction. And this is a known commodity in the mystery schools, and I find it rather telling that those at the top of the power structure today, what is it that they seek to do? What, where are they leading this world? What direction? Are they leading us towards a more spiritual-centered life? Or are they leading us down the road of hyper-materialism, wherein everything is equated to some byproduct of a cause-and-effect relationship in this physical, material world? Answer that question for yourself, and you will absolutely know what the zeitgeist, or the spirit of the time, is. And it identifies itself as Ahriman, as discussed by Steiner. It is this dweller of the threshold, the Satan idea, the Antichrist idea, if you will, because Christ represents the highest form of spirituality. 
So Antichrist, this alternative, it's a cheap knockoff, and it represents physicality in its purest form, materialism in its purest form, and therefore it is Antichrist. It's an alternate Christ that is intended to lead man further down this trail into materialism, hypermaterialism, and trap man in the material paradigm and keep him from elevating spiritually in any way, shape, or form. So that's what's being identified here. But let's continue reading because, as always, they have certain distinctions they make in these mystery school teachings wherein they think they have the answers and that they're the ones in the right with their interpretations of various spiritual things. And as I always tell you, I, I do think there is some air of truth to the things they say, but they also have just a little bit of poison mixed with it. And we have to be careful and we have to discern what's, what's right and correct and what's wrong. And that's why I always caution you to, do, to always take this stuff with a grain of salt because there's no way to really objectively prove nor disprove anything they're saying. It's a very subjective or experiential thing. And we need to be able to discern for ourselves what's the truth of the matter and what's not. And like I said, I do think they do have some very good information that they give. But also, be wary of the poison they're in. And be weary of the advice that they give, because much of what they give you in the modern era is contorted from what the original teaching was, or what the original intention was, what the original alchemical science was. It's the complete inversion thereof. So you're not always being led correctly when you're listening to these theosophists or these various Rosicrucian groups or any of these secret schools because what we've wound up with in the modern era is the inversion principle at work through these hermetic sciences, through these alchemical sciences. They've been contorted and twisted by those at the top of the power structure for the purposes of control of others and for deifying themselves in this physical material world. That's what they seek. That's what they're aiming for. And they don't want people to understand the spiritual implications of the things that are going on. And by and large, the time we're living in, to switch over between ages, in which during the natural course of the cycles of time in this natural world, according to natural law, we should be going through a state of spiritual ascension, going into the age of Aquarius, but those dark occultists at the top of the power structure, they don't want that. They want us entrenched in the hyper-materialist paradigm. They want to keep us down in this animalistic form because then they could be the gods of us here, keep us trapped here in this very material way of thinking and not spiritually elevate. And that's why I have actually written a book about this called The Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order, where I identify various esoteric or occult principles which they have been utilizing in recent 
years, probably for at least the past century, if not longer, to try to steer this new age into a different energetic principle than that of Aquarius, which speaks of the ascension of man spiritually, the spiritual elevation of man, the age of air, air equating to spirit. They've attempted to hijack this and altogether skip over the energies attached to the age of Aquarius and go straight towards the age of Capricorn, the goat, and we see the goat symbolism everywhere. Oh, he's the goat, the greatest of all time. How many times do you hear that about some athlete or, you know, famous person or some such thing? Well, this is all part of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time. This is wherein you can identify what's going on. This is what I like to call synchromystic metadata, which if you learn how to read, you can see the world through a different lens and understand better what's going on in the spiritual realms around you by being able to identify this. And for some people, it may be a bridge too far and you think it's all nonsense. Well, that's your prerogative to believe that. But I assure you, whether you believe it or not, even if you think it's nonsense, there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe in these ideas and these principles and the things they do to act upon them will affect all of us. So it's important to understand why and how they do things the energetic principles that they manipulate to get things done in this world, and absolutely those are real. There are real energetic principles that occur in the natural world. Things that were known by the older civilizations of mankind, wherein you knew exactly when to plant certain crops, when to harvest certain crops, based upon the activity of the sky clock. These are real things. These energetic principles really exist. And this is much of what's the knowledge that's been hidden from the public by these secret society groups and these occult fraternities through the centuries. The knowledge of the timing of a lot of this stuff. You'll notice they, they do a lot of things at specific times of the year. A prime example would be September 11th, and there's very occult reasons for that. So, you know, with that being the case, we're going to go ahead and continue on. I don't want to get too far off the beaten path here. It looks like my stream has dropped again, so <clears throat> I'm going to pause for a second and try to get it running one more time here. And then we're going to continue on, and like I said earlier, if the stream drops at some point here... I will post the replay in its entirety tomorrow for those of you who have been listening along. But I don't know why this stream keeps dropping tonight. It could be weather related or maybe there's something else going on. I'm not entirely sure. It's just odd. So um, I hope that you guys can hear me. And if not, I'll get it going here again real soon. Looks like it's up and running as of now. I'll edit all of this out for the replay so that you don't have to listen to me griping about my internet dropping in the middle of the stream here. But uh, we were speaking about the reasons for 
the things going on here and how it relates to this dweller of the threshold idea. So let's continue on and see what else the author has to say here in this article. Let us examine the attributes of that semi-animal self. First of all, we see that it is the residence of animal instincts and passions which represent themselves to the interior eye in a semi-animal and animal forms. For external forms on the astral plane are the external expressions of internal principles. A psychic activity will produce a corresponding form. In it reside the animal sensations and the calculating intellect with all its cunning, sophistry and craftiness, personal will and the love of illusions. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this guy claims that in its astral form, it manifests externally this animal idea, this semi-animal form of man. And it's an illusion based upon your cunning, your craftiness, your sophistry, as it were, your personal will and your love of illusions, it'll produce a corresponding psychic form based upon your psychic activity. So if you are acting in a manner which is seeking to fulfill your animalistic instincts, this will manifest in the astral, according to this guy. But uh, like I said, that's not something that can be objectively proved in any way so it's either take his word for it or don't right so use your discernment to decide but let's read on according to the doctrines of the rosicrucians the personal intellect and will of man is merely a reflex of the eternal and universal spiritual son of wisdom which he says in parentheses is spiritual consciousness acting within the sphere of self in throwing so to say a ray into the mirrors of the minds of men and women, as the light of the terrestrial sun by being thrown upon the moon becomes reflected and modified, and the earth during nighttime, instead of the warm, life-giving sunshine, receives merely the cold and elusive light of the moon. Likewise, the material and superficial, superficial prisoner during the night of his ignorance, sees only the cold moonshine of his own perverted intellect and mistakes it for the sun of eternal truth. Proud of his supposed possession of the true light, he neglects to seek deeper. He rests self-satisfied in his acquired false learning and falls a prey to the dragon." He cannot conquer the dweller of the threshold, nor does he wish to do so, because he is himself that dweller, and is in love with himself. He does not want to enter the temple, and does not perhaps even know that the temple exists. To be better understood, we will call the light coming directly from the great spiritual son of wisdom, intuition, that coming to our consciousness through the intellectual working of the brain, reason. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So let's make the distinction here. So he, he makes this allegorical statement of the truth of nature, wherein the sun of wisdom shines its rays upon us in the form of a reflection 
represented by the moon, and it's represented as a cold light, so that when you are when you are not following this path of spiritual understanding, you think you know what you know, and you fumble through the night thinking that you're enlightened, thinking that you're intellectual, that you're so intelligent and you have an understanding of how the world operates. But you really don't, because you ignore your intuition as it operates through the brain's reasoning capacities, as it were. And you rely simply on physical, material world cues, external cues, for navigating this life. And he equates it back to the idea of the ray, a ray of sunshine, as it were, a ray of light being reflected. And these ideas are hugely important to some of the mystical schools here. They like to look at the idea of the seven rays and all of the different concepts associated with that. But you, you see, you have to understand that it's a reflection, that we reflect outwardly those things that we comprehend inwardly, we reflect that outwardly to other people, you see. So, let's continue reading here. They are originally caused by only one ray, but the former represents that ray in its purity, the latter as having become colored, distorted, or reversed within the individual sphere of self. In the daytime, when the sun shines, we do not require the light of the moon. If it were continually day in our soul, if its atmosphere were not clouded, if we were living in that pure ethereal state in which one is able to see the light of wisdom in its fullness and without a doubt, we would not need to exert our own individual intellect for the purpose of knowing the truth. The voice of intuition would be heard so plain that it could not possibly be misunderstood, and we should know all we desired to know, for we should perceive indirectly and not need to speculate about it. But man has become immersed in matter. A part of that divine man-forming ray has become so much differentiated as to be grossly material, and has lost the capability to see the pure light of the spiritual sun, the consequence is that we must necessarily have recourse to the feeble moonlight of our own material reason to help us to grope along in our darkness. A part of ourselves, that part which has not yet become grossly material, our higher self, still sees the light of the sun and hears the word, and may communicate it to the lower self, if the latter will listen. But the more the lower self clings to the sphere of phenomena and sensuality, the more will it become separated from the higher self, the more will the light of intuition become indistinct and uncertain, and the more will the superficial reasoner become dependent on his individual reasoning intellect and proud of its elusive power until he falls prey to the dragon. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So... The further into the materialist paradigm we wander, 
the more separated we are from this intuition, from this spiritual sensibility, as it were. We walk away from spiritual knowledge, from all things spiritual, and this entrenches us in our animal nature. That's the point being made here. Until we fall prey to the dragon, which is our animal nature. And when we do, it's always destructive. Do you understand? Seeking out fulfillment of your animal desires and your animal nature leads to death and destruction. This is part of the natural cycle of things. This is what we were warned about in the Garden of Eden. In that day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, this is what God meant. If you partake in this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, this allegory as it were, if you step into fleshly material world existence, and this is what many of the secret schools teach, that the spirits that manifest here in physical form as human beings, they're here by choice. They wanted to come here and experience materiality. It's said that uh, many of the spiritual beings in the various hierarchies, as they claim in these mystery schools, they are, in a sense, jealous of those who exist in the material world here. Jealous. Because they want to have that type of manifestation in themselves. That it's a real treat to be able to have this physical form and these physical sensations. And this is what is claimed in, in some of these mystery schools. And like I said, take it with a grain of salt. No way to prove whether it's true or not. <laughs> but they claim that that's why many of these spiritual entities, why they want to be here and manifest in a physical form. It's a much desired thing. This kind of gives a little credence to that idea, but once you step into it, if you don't if you don't keep your higher-minded principles in view, the spiritual side of things in view, it becomes a trap of sorts. A trap where you fall prey to the dragon where it leads to your destruction. So the whole story of the Garden of Eden, of partaking of the forbidden fruit, is about these beings who were spirit, part spirit, part physical, stepping fully into physical manifestation and having that experience. Now, this is the allegory they tell in the mystery schools. So you understand, these are the kinds of things they teach within these occult fraternities that that's what had happened, that Adam and Eve, they were the first beings, the first humans, as it were, these spiritual entities, to step fully into material form here, where their, their inner being aligned perfectly with their physical being so that they lost their spiritual sight, that a portion of their mind their mind in the spiritual coincided perfectly with their brain in the physical with a certain region in the brain and when these things aligned properly it was fully manifest within the human being rather than having some spiritual type of sensation outside of the human body as well it fully entrenched itself within 
at this point. This is what they teach, and I know it might sound a little convoluted, but we've discussed this on some previous broadcasts. So the whole point is they say that the whole story of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man is when man actually began to manifest physically in the physical material world here, and that this is where we have the battle with this dweller of the threshold now where we battle this animalistic nature, our spiritual self, our higher self, batters, battles with the lower self, the animal self, for control. And it's symbolized by various things, such as the dragon, as equated to here. But let's continue reading, because we just talked about how this elusive power, the pride of this elusive power leads people to fall prey to the dragon. And he says here, modern material science can therefore never become spiritual science, for the former is bound to the sphere of phenomena and deals only with them. To become practically acquainted with spiritual science, men must develop their own inner senses. Without the ability to perceive interior things, such a science would be a matter of for mere speculation and theory. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he makes a clear distinction between what our modern material science is and what he claims a spiritual science is. That these things cannot, that one cannot be the other. Our modern material science that we have does not give you an objective measurement of spiritual things. It is not possible because spiritual things are not something you can objectively measure. And our modern science, our material science, seeks to objectively measure everything. And it can't be done when you're talking about something subjective or experiential, something spiritual, something that does not have a physical type of form here in this realm of form, you see. It exists in a different realm, connected to this one very much, but something that can't be physically grasped here. Something subjective. Let's continue on. The same line of reasoning may be applied to the will. Man imagines he has a will of his own, but his life and will are merely a ray of the eternal and universal life and willpower, acting within his sphere of self, becoming colored, distorted, and perhaps perverted by personal and selfish desires. The ray of the eternal will, acting within the entirely unselfish soul of man, is the legitimate sun produced by the power of Abram, shining into the womb of Sarah, meaning the pure and unadulterated living well of truth, but the same ray, acting within Hagar, and becoming tainted by selfish desires, produces the son of the concubine, the Ishmael, who must be sent away into the wilderness to starve and to perish. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's alluding here to the biblical story of Abram, or Abraham, and his wife Sarah. This was Abraham before he took on the name Abraham. He was Abram. And his wife Sarah, they were barren. They were unable to have children. They were very old. And Abram, in his faith, prayed to God, 
had an encounter with God, prayed to God for a son, tried to take matters into his own hands, and had relations with his concubine Hagar and produced the child Ishmael. But this was not the child promised by God. His wife Sarah bore a child Isaac for him. And Abram became Abraham, the father of many, the father of all of the major monotheistic religions in the world today, Abraham. So this is the story to which he's alluding here. And he's claiming that the legitimate son produced by the power of Abram shining into the womb of Sarah, meaning the pure and unadulterated living well of truth, that that's what this ray is, but this same ray, when it becomes tainted by our materialistic desires and our animal nature, produces Ishmael, the son of the concubine. This is the allegory being made. So this is what it's alluding to, the biblical story, if you're not familiar with it. But let's continue on. So he says, Little indeed would be the value of the Bible or any other holy scripture if the stories contained therein were merely accounts of events having taken place in the lives of certain persons unknown to us and said to have been living some thousands of years ago. The biblical personages are allegories representing certain occult powers, and their history represents certain mysterious processes. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, like I've told you before, in these mystery schools, they say the biblical stories, well, these are just allegories. It's all allegorical. There's nothing real or miraculous to any of it. And in the same breath, they claim that they can achieve sensational spiritual powers through the secret knowledges that they have, that they could have clairvoyant sight and they could have all these weird magical powers that they claim are possible that only they know because they know the secrets. But yet they deny the power in the biblical scripture. This is having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof defined in the New Testament, as it were, about those in the last days. We've been warned, I think it was the book of, of Timothy, Second Timothy, that speaks of that concept. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. But uh, at any rate, this is essentially the, what I tell you. They'll, they'll tell you, they'll tell you, all this stuff, it's all allegory. It's all just tales. There's no truth to it. It's just a story to convey an idea to you. Nothing more than that. There's no real magical or miraculous type powers involved in any of it. They tell you that in, their, uh, in one context, but then in another they claim to have these very same powers and stuff that they deny being represented in the historical account of things in the Bible. So, that being the case, they always kind of talk out both sides of their mouths, don't they? When it comes to this stuff. But at any rate, let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. So he says, The biblical personages are allegories representing certain occult powers, and their history represents certain mysterious processes. The book of Genesis, if properly understood, is a history of spiritual evolution. 
going to pause again there, always about spiritual evolution. That's what they speak about in these mystery schools. And they've certainly introduced that idea into the material paradigm as well. Evolution, have they not? And you see how it's a cheap knockoff of what was originally intended, if you could learn to understand what's been done here through the course of time by these dark occultists at the top of the power structure who run things. The ones that maybe got a hold of some old alchemical sciences, some natural sciences, understood a little more about the operations of this world than what we the public do, and kept these things hidden and used them for control of others and to glorify themselves and to fulfill their own desires, the control over others, and they've passed this down through time to their offspring, through the various family bloodlines that always tie together into the, these topmost levels of society here through history, as we see. But let's continue on with the reading. Still quite a bit more to cover. Man's selfish love, will, thought, imagination, etc., are all only temporal and illusory possessions which would cease if the eternal sun of the spirit should cease to shine. Likewise, in perfect darkness, all objects are of the same color. Only when the light shines forth, each of them will appear in its proper hue by reflecting the universal light, according to the peculiar attributes belonging to their constitutions. But if we conquer the dweller of the threshold, the lower self, what shall we obtain? When Adam, the material man with all his passions and desires and animal instincts, has died and disappeared during physical life upon the earth, the spiritual man, the Christ, arises in his glory. This event is not to be expected to take place after physical death, but must take place during life. Spirit needs the lower life as a ladder to climb up and attain the higher life. In this spiritual principle rests spiritual consciousness, spiritual life, spiritual knowledge, and spiritual power. Its will and imagination are one with the will and imagination of the all-penetrating universal power, which created all the forms of the universe out of its own substance. The word creation, meaning a something coming into existence out of nothing, can only refer to form. Form is nothing. It is a mere shape of something which existed before the form was created. It is nothing per se, but an illusion. Being one with the divine power in nature and knowing itself, it knows all the mysteries of nature by direct perception and without the slow process of intellectual theoretical speculation. Being one with the carpenter of the universe, it may create forms or destroy them by the power of its spiritual will. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. There's a lot to unpack in that last paragraph we just read. So we see the importance tied to will and imagination. And I will remind you, will and imagination, these are two of the key tenets of what it means to be human. These are two key attributes we have as human beings as being divine gifts from God and being very important. 
we have free will, and we have imagination. Now, this represents the masculine and the feminine principles in man, the will representing the masculine, the imagination representing the feminine. So you see, when you take one of those components away, you have a problem. And just as a little sidetrack here, artificial intelligence has no imagination. It has no feminine attribute to it. That's why we have a lot of issues. That's also why they're engineering man, mankind, human beings, into this androgynous type form with this whole trans agenda going on. And make no mistake about it, it's an agenda. There's an agenda behind it. They want the, homo the, the homogenization of gender and they push it towards this androgynous type of a perspective this more masculine type of perspective because this represents the will and will without imagination is lost and can only be led around you see has no no muse so it were there's no muse without the existence of imagination with the will. If the will has no imagination, it has no muse, it has no motivation. And therefore, it will blindly follow where it's led. And it may be good at objectively measuring things, but it can't do anything creative with that and don't we see that with computers and this is why I'll go ahead and say that they are purposely engineering mankind into this type of a situation wherein we're losing this imagination idea or ideal as it were losing the precepts of the divine feminine idea that is the imagination. That's what imagination represents. And yes, we see the feminist things going on in Hollywood, but how do they represent these women in movies? This girl power thing that they do? Well, they all try to act like men and do it better than men, don't they? So they, they still portray the more masculine traits, and they call this, you know, being progressive, when it's really not. It's lack of imagination. It's separating will from imagination and engineering mankind into this mode wherein man becomes very much more compatible with machines, with computers, and can be controlled in such a way, just like a machine, like a computer, that's why society's being engineered in that way. And that's absolutely what it's all about. It all leads to transhumanism, as we've talked about before. That is the fulfillment of their great work that they work towards. So that's just one little side idea that can be sussed out of this last paragraph. So we see here that man needs the lower self because we need to conquer the lower self in order to achieve the higher life, as it were. 
And a lot of mainline religions will tell you that we achieve this after we die here, after we leave this physical body, then we ascend. This guy says that's not correct. You have to do that during life. Jesus said something similar, that uh, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you need to be born again. To which he was asked, well, how do I do that? Could I get back in my mother's womb and, and do this whole thing a second time? Is that how that works? And you see the context therein being said. So you have to come to this knowledge, this higher knowledge, this spiritual knowledge, by, by confronting your own animal nature, by acknowledging your spiritual side, and by understanding your will and imagination. This is the work of spiritual alchemy of sorts. So these spiritual ideas do have a lot of value in my estimation. But like I said, the way that they frame it, they always include the little bit of poison because you'll notice here that he claims when you can do this, when you realize that this Life is but an illusion, as it were. Form, this material form we live in, is nothing but an illusion, a mere illusion. When we recognize that and we're able to understand the will and the imagination of ourselves, we can understand the greater will and greater imagination. And then we will be one with what he identifies as the carpenter of the universe. Now, be careful of this term, because he says carpenter of the universe, and of course he's trying to connect the idea to Jesus. But this is not Jesus he's speaking of, the carpenter of the universe. He's talking about the great architect of the universe, which has been identified through Freemasonry and various of the other secret schools as Lucifer. Understand... In many of these schools of thought, they teach that Lucifer and Jesus are two aspects of the same being, and I don't think that's correct. I think they're deceived. There are distinctions between the two notable ones that can be sussed out. But you see how they try to make this connection and this, I think, has everything to do with the spirit of what we call Antichrist. An alternative Christ, Lucifer representing an alternative Christ. And if you go to Steiner's thoughts on this, he identifies Lucifer, and he identifies Ariman, and he identifies Christ. Three principles that interconnect and go back and forth and fight back and forth. And he claims... Christ is the balancing point between the spiritual, which is represented by Lucifer, and the material, which is represented by Ahriman. This is what Steiner claims. I think it's two sides of the same coin, Lucifer and Ahriman. They both represent an aspect of the Antichrist spirit, as it were, this alternative Christ, in my viewpoint. I have various reasons for this, but that's beyond the scope of tonight's show here. But uh, 
at some time we may explore those ideas a little further, but we still have quite a bit I want to get through here before we sign off. So I'm going to continue on with the reading here. Man is a microcosm in which are potentially or germinally contained all the powers, essences, principles, and substances contained in the macrocosm of the universe. Heaven and hell, God, angels, elementals, and devils are within him, and whatever is in his constitution may become developed and grow. The science of alchemy teaches the spiritually enlightened man how to deal with these unseen principles and powers, which, though they are invisible, are nevertheless substantial, for matter and spirit are one. They are both the manifestations of one original power. The manifestation of that power in its external and visible effects is called matter. In its invisible and causative activity, it may be called spirit. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, this idea, I think, has a lot of good information in it, if you want my honest opinion. I think he's correct. Man is a microcosm of the macrocosm. All these things are designed very similarly. And we do have this aspect to us to a certain degree wherein we could understand the greater universe the macrocosm by understanding ourselves that matter and spirit are the manifestation of cause and effect spirit is the cause matter the effect as it were and this consubstantiality between spirit and matter, spirit and form, this is what we call consciousness. You see, this consubstantiality between spirit and form. Consciousness. So when you think upon these principles, and know we have both of these aspects of our nature, and they're both necessary to exist in this place. You have to have your spiritual side, your higher self, and you have to have your physical body, your lower self, in order to manifest your consciousness here in the way that we do. It's a different type of consciousness. It's a different kind of will. It's free will. Human beings, according to the mystery teachings, are the only created beings with free will. The angelic hierarchies and these things, they claim, they don't have free will. They just go about doing the will of the Creator or, or doing the will of what it is they have to manifest, the creation as it were. These are the claims that they do whatever processes are necessary in order to make things manifest. The elementals, it said the same thing. They do what they're supposed to do on time, all the time. They have no choice in the matter. They do what they do. Man has choice. We have free will. This is the gift of God. This is one thing that makes mankind very special and makes this material world that we live in special in a certain way and desirable for some of the other spiritual beings who would like to manifest this free will principle. But... But there's always this, this caveat. You have to do battle 
with your lower self, the animal self. That's part of the catch here. You can't have the spiritual sight or, or have the spiritual intelligence, as it were, the spiritual perception and the physical world perception without conquering the lower self in this place. This is what they claim. This is what they claim. Like I said, take it with a grain of salt. No way to really prove nor disprove this in an objective fashion. It's something that would be largely experiential or subjective. And people believe maybe they've attained this spiritual sight through practicing some of these spiritual practices. I don't know. I can't attest to that. They tell you you can either take their word for it or not. There's no way for them to prove that. And that's the whole point here. So, like I said, I think they do teach some valuable information that has a core of truth to it. But they always have that hint of poison, like their reverence towards the great architect of the universe. That being that we would describe as Lucifer, the ruler of this world, as it were, the prince of the power of the air. The one that leads us further into this trap. That is materialism. Hyper-materialism. The one that seeks to separate us from all things spiritual. Separate us from God. And keep us trapped in the physical state. To be controlled like puppets on a string. This Antichrist spirit, as it were. But let's continue on. I, I'm, I'm going on, on little side tangents a little too long here, and I've got to wrap it up here very soon. A man who thoroughly knows himself knows all nature. A man who can govern himself with divine wisdom is subject to no other power. He is a god within his own realm, and being one with the ruling power of the universe, his power extends as far as the latter. Man can know nothing except that which exists within himself. We cannot see a house before its image has entered our sphere of consciousness. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, he says he is a god within his own realm. So once again, equating man to God, to being God, the poison that they put in with the good food, as always, man can be God. He could be the God of himself. He could be a self-made man. Nothing, no other power can rule him if he knows himself thoroughly enough and he could govern himself with his own divine wisdom. Then he'll be subject to no other power. I think that's a false dichotomy in my estimation, folks. No created thing can be greater than its creator and that's what's being said here. Let's read on. It will therefore be seen that the true science of alchemy does not require for its practice an array of costly chemicals, retorts, stones, bottles, and pots, but the materials with which it deals may be had everywhere for nothing and are within the reach of every one, even within that of the poorest. The power used in practical alchemy is the power of the spirit, and only those who possess this power can practice this art. For those who do not possess it, its study will be a matter of mere speculation. 
There are three distinct kinds of manifestation of energy known. Number one, mechanical force, acting merely on the surface of things and being the slowest of all. Everyone who is not paralyzed possesses that power. If he did not possess it, he could not know it. Neither could it be satisfactorily described to him. Number two, chemical action, being far more powerful because it penetrates into the interior of objects and produces molecular disintegration. Bodies which resist mechanical force can be dissolved by it. It is a power known in its effect to the chemist. While those who are not acquainted with chemistry know little about it, and the opinions of the latter in regard to the facts of chemistry are of no practical value. Number three, spiritual activity, the most powerful of all, because it penetrates into the very center, the spiritual essence of things, and changes their substances, and infuses them with life. Like the preceding ones, it is a force well known to those who possess it, but unknown to those who do not possess it, however learned in other departments of science the latter may be. Those, however, who possess it are at present, in our material age, very few, because they are the spiritually illuminated ones, the adepts, or men who have passed through the process of spiritual regeneration. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Spiritual regeneration, and we'll identify that in a moment. They are the people in whom the spiritual soul has grown and developed, penetrating the whole physical body with its power, enabling them to cure diseases by the touch of their hands and communicate life to them, to sink their own consciousness into the minds of other men and read their thoughts, to perceive with the interior eye things which are hidden to the external sight, and to perform other things which the ignorant call miracles, because they are miraculous to them and beyond the power of their understanding. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, as well, just to point out that these same people who were just moments ago telling you that everything in the Bible, it's all allegorical tales, and you don't, you know, need to believe in any of that, that any of those miracles truly happened. It's all just allegories. But we have the true spiritual powers. They're telling you they could perform miracles with their spiritual science. But there's very few that can do it. Do you see the dichotomy here? But let's continue on, now that you have the idea of where they inject the poison into the good meat. Do you know what the expression spiritual regeneration means? If you do not know it, ask some modern scientist, and he will probably answer like Nicodemus of old, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? You may ask your clergyman, and if he has not passed himself through the process and become an adept, the probability is that he will have only a very vague idea about it. If he belongs to a Christian church, he will probably say that spiritual regeneration takes place when the ceremonies of baptism and confirmation are administered, that thereby a spiritual power descends through his hands upon the candidate, who thereupon becomes regenerated. He will say that the power to confer this spirit has been given to him, by having been made a clergyman, 
but he does not himself know that power, neither have we ever seen a case in which a person, after having submitted to such ceremonies, has become an adept, and endowed with the power to heal and to work miracles, nor is it reasonable to suppose that the universal spirit, the Holy Ghost, could be monopolized by any class of people or by a church, and be made an article of trade, or that one man's spiritual evolution could be made to depend on the will and pleasure of another human being. Everything in nature takes place according to natural laws. Trees and animals grow when the necessary conditions are given. Intellectual development requires intellectual food. Spiritual development requires the growth of the spirit. Grapes do not grow on thistles, and men are not born from cows. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. That might not be true any longer. I mean, you never know in this day and age of science. Uh, the things that are being done, the chimeras that are being made in laboratories, all the unnatural things that fly in the face of natural law. But I digress on that, but let's continue on. No one can give to another that which he does not himself possess going to pause for a moment there. I guess this guy has never heard of government. <laughs> anyway, let's continue on. A truly divine person must be in possession of divine powers, and he cannot possess and use such powers without being conscious of it. Oh, for a clergyman who is really a divine. He would be a real spiritual guide. But to be a true spiritual guide requires more than mere talk about spiritual things, which one has merely learned from hearsay and knows practically nothing about. Going to pause for a second here, folks. So this guy has very little regard for the Christian church, obviously. And we see so much of that in these mystery schools. They speak in an authoritative fashion about that which they really don't know much about. Because there's many who operate within the churches, who go about and see miracles happen. Lives changed on the regular. Miraculous things performed. And they acknowledge the Holy Spirit for doing so. They acknowledge God as being the source thereof. It's not part of their mystical powers that they got because they're oh so evolutionary evolved, I guess is the word. They're also evolved spiritually and they have these special powers and it's them, them, them. Do you see where this gets egoic? Where it's all about me, me, me to a certain extent. It's these masters, these adepts. They're oh so sophisticated and evolved that only they can do that. They perform the miracles. It's not God performing the miracle, folks. They're not giving credit where credit is due in my estimation, and I think this is fallacy on their part, and wherein some of the poison lies. God can perform a miracle whenever and wherever he wants to. He does not necessarily need a certain person to be the intercessor therein. And this is not what they teach in the mystery schools. They teach that through their teachings, through their spiritual sciences, as they like to call them, that if only you're quite good enough, you can maybe begin to manifest some of this type of power. Whereas, if you become initiated into their order, you can manifest these things. And it's a false paradigm here, folks. They're not giving credit where credit's due. 
But let's continue on. This guy goes on to quote Paracelsus here. So he says, Paracelsus says, The wearing of a black coat or the possession of a piece of paper signed by some human authority does not make a man divine who acts wisely because wisdom comes from God. The knowledge which our clergymen possess is not obtained by them from the Father, but they learn it from each other. He who desires to learn the truth must be able to see it and not be satisfied with descriptions of it received from others. The highest power of the intellect, if it is not illuminated by wisdom, is only a high grade of animal intellect and will perish in time. But the intellect animated by the love of the supreme is the intellect of the angels and will live eternally. Or live in eternity. So I'm going to pause right there. So he attributes this quote to Paracelsus and doesn't see the hypocrisy of his own statements here. Where do these people in the mystery schools learn their teachings from? Well, of course, they learn them from other people within these same groups. Clergymen of sorts themselves, right? So he doesn't see the problem with this, but likes to make aspersions at the church. But let's continue on, and we're going to finish up here. Jacob Boma, the great Christian mystic, says... Fain and dissemble, shout, sing, preach, and teach as much as you please, but if the spirit within you is not alive, all the noise you make will amount to nothing. A Christ belongs to no sect and needs no artificial church. He carries his church within his soul. He does not quarrel or dispute with others about any difference of opinion. He desires nothing else but his God. So, Jacob Boma, that's, uh, you know, I... A pretty good quote there on his part. I don't think he's necessarily incorrect in his saying, but let's continue on and we'll finish this up. There are, however, even in this age of materialism, men who have passed or are passing through this spiritual regeneration, of which the Bible says that no one can consciously enter into the kingdom of God except he be reborn of the Spirit. They say that spiritual regeneration, or initiation has three stages with the first spark of an interior thought penetrating to the center of the soul and awakening of the spiritual consciousness of man the germ is laid for the development of the inner spiritual man if the newborn christ is continually fed with the proper nutriment of the soul and not driven away by herod it will grow a new and inner life, unknown before, will come into action and penetrate all the parts of the physical body. Certain mysterious processes, which are not communicated to the uninitiated, take place, and in this consists the true baptism with the water of truth or the attainment of spiritual consciousness, having nothing to do with any external ceremony or administration of water by sprinkling, dipping, or otherwise. It consists in the unnatural man becoming natural, in bringing his will and imagination, his thought, into harmony with that of the universal spirit, and becoming able to recognize the truth by direct interior perception. The second is the fastening of the spirit, the baptism of blood, which the inner life becomes fixed through the power of the word, a process during which certain physiological changes take place within the organization of the physical body. The third is the baptism with the living fire of the spirit, whereby the candidate for immortality attains spiritual power and becomes able to exercise it according to his will. 
then he will be able to control the organic functions of his body, the involuntary functions, because he will be master over the functions of his soul, the physical organism being merely an external expression of the former. He will be able to act from the interior to the exterior, from the center to the periphery, while the inexperienced waste their strength in useless attempts to reverse that process. To practice alchemy and to exercise spiritual power, one must be spiritually developed. The first step to this development is the conquering of the dweller of the threshold. And the key to the position is the displacement of the love of self by the love of eternal good, which finds its expression in the universal brotherhood of humanity, the fundamental principle upon which the Theosophical Society rests. And that's the end of the reading here, folks. So do you see initiation? Its initiation is this regeneration, as they call it here. And if you're good enough, and you're spiritual enough, and you're evolved enough, well, eventually you could get to that place where you can actually control the unconscious functions of your body. <laughs> this is their claim. This is their claim. These are the kinds of things they claim, and in the same breath they'll tell you all that biblical stuff, it's all just allegory. They deny the power of God, but they deify the power of man, the creation here. They make these claims that man can achieve this, but it's only a very select few of them that become adept enough to do this. They're special. They're the ones that go around doing the miracles. They're the ones that should be credited with the miracles, not God Almighty himself. Do you see what's been done here in the subtle nature of which it's done? And how they talk in circles, using circular logic with these things. Oh, it's all allegory. You know, except for that part where we have all these magical spiritual powers because we're just so much more spiritually evolved than other people because we're so smart and we know the secret knowledge and we train using the secret science, the spiritual science. And that makes us better. That gives us the divine right to rule. Do you see how it twists their consciousness, how it twists their, their thought processes? Do you see the inherent poison mixed in with the good teaching? Because there is some good teaching mixed with this. But it's all been perverted and inverted from the natural law aspect of it and the original alchemical intent thereof. And I do think there are those good alchemists out there trying to do right and glorify God. And always, God has a place in this in the true workings of miraculous things. But that's not acknowledged in these secret schools, these occult fraternities. They want to take credit themselves. It's all about egoism. It's all about control. And I think that's all you need to know about that. The reasoning why they do these things. What it is they teach. Understand it, folks. Whether, like I said, whether you think it's all nonsense or whether you think there's something to it, Makes no difference. Understand that there's people in positions of power in this world that very much believe this stuff and will act upon it. And the things they do to act upon it will affect all of us. 
So it's important to understand their motivations, understand their thought processes, why they do what they do, how they do what they do. And we could learn some important lessons by exploring these types of writings. I think this was a pretty good one. The dweller of the threshold, this conquering of the animal self. This spiritual essence that coexists with us and within us that we must keep at bay in order to avoid the trap of materiality here. And that's absolutely what it is. Influenced by this spirit identified by Steiner as Ahriman, this leading into these animalistic ways of being here, the physical paradigm, as it were, the material world paradigm. So I hope you found this talk tonight interesting, educational, I hope you find value in it. I want to remind you all I appreciate each and every one of you. And that's all I have for tonight. So we're going to sign off right there. Have a good night, everyone. Take care out there. Come with me. Say